All right. Uh, in Judaism, they study uh, Torah with a partner. And um, uh, so I've got more than one partner here, so <laughs> that works good. We're uh, continuing our Corinthian uh, series. I, I think the main might need to be turned down a little, Trevor, because we're getting feedback on this. We're, we're using the pulpit mic instead of the other one, so. All right, so um, let me try that. Um, Paul's focus in this letter is the unity of the body of Christ as a holy community, a group of people separated from the world unto the Lord. But the Corinthians are divided over their favorite ministers and they're unholy because of their open sin. They're suing one another uh, and taking those cases before unbelievers and in some sense refusing to be a holy community which accepts one another in the Lord. So Paul addresses those things and then he addresses their questions about marriage in a time of distress, addressing both the subject of fornication and idolatry, things that go back to the Acts 15 passage, and uh, eating food sacrificed to idols. His major point is that they must have a mind of holy unity and humility. He addresses the problem of knowledge that makes someone arrogant and love which edifies or protects the conscience of the other in these matters. So last week we saw that he wanted them to understand self-limitation, which is part of that humility, by explaining why he and Barnabas did not accept support from the congregation, which was their biblical right. In this he showed the attitude of entitlement must be overcome by humility and love for others. So, he continues that in this chapter, chapter 10, that we're going to look at today, and um, wants to give them, if you will, an understanding from the Torah itself, and he is going to connect their living in the following of Yeshua or Jesus as Messiah, and the history and experience of the fathers in the wilderness. So in uh, chapter 10, he begins with the first six verses. I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And they were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And they ate the same spiritual food and they drank the same spiritual drink For they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and that rock was Messiah, or Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. Now these things happened as examples for us, so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. So in a sense... Paul's now going to do a little midrash of the, of the Exodus experience, and he's going to tie that into the following of, of the Lord. So, he begins by saying that uh, the fathers in that generation that came out of Egypt, uh, that they were, uh, as he puts it, they were all... Uh, uh, under the cloud and all passed through the sea. Uh, 
Israel was led out of Egypt by the pillar of fire, pillar of smoke, the presence of God. As they were led out, they then camped by the sea. You know the story. Pharaoh sent his, uh, his men to get them. God opened the sea. They went through that. And in a sense, uh, Paul is saying, and they were baptized unto Moses in that context. Then he goes on to talk about them eating and drinking of spiritual food. So what exactly is he uh, trying to get at? Well, first of all, they were all under the cloud and in the sea is about their calling to God. They were, they were called, if you will, and led by God. Then he says, they were baptized into Moses, separated from the Egyptians, from the world, and made a holy people, sanctified under the guidance of Moses in that, in that context. He says they ate the same spiritual food. He's talking about the manna that came down from heaven, uh, which uh, uh, the Bible says God gave them manna from heaven to teach them that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And then he says they drank the same spiritual drink, this water from the rock that followed them, that Moses struck, uh, was Messiah, uh, Paul says. Um, and of course, the living water, the Mayim Hayim, that's part of the tabernacle ceremony that we recently did. Uh, well, I guess it's been almost half a year now. That, that's something that we're familiar with. Out of his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. Uh, the parallel is obvious and the meaning is clear. Israel was saved by the Passover lamb and became a holy community of God and were sustained and led by God. Paul's already told them that they are to keep the, the feast uh, of unleavened bread because Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed for us. He is drawing from these shadows in the Torah to talk about the substance which is uh, Messiah. However, he says, but with most of them, God was not well pleased. And he, they were laid low in the wilderness. Now, the word laid low there means that they were strewn all over the wilderness. You know the story. They murmur against God. They struggle in the temptations that happened in the wilderness. And God finally says to them, all right, I'm done with you. You're griping about your concern about your children, but you're really not wanting to do it yourself. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to drop your carcasses in the wilderness and your children I'm going to bring. In other words, I, I've kind of had it with this generation. I'll work with the next generation. And in that context, Paul writes these next words uh, beginning at, um, I'm going to start verse 6 and then move on. Now these things happened as examples for us so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. So don't be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Nor let us act in fornication as some of them, some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us test or try the Lord 
as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. So Paul's warning uh, the Corinthians that we believers, now that the Lord has come, are in this last time, moving towards the second coming and the end of this world as we know it. And he says, God wrote these things, had these things written down to be examples for us, so that we would not follow these same temptations. So this chapter is really about the avoidance of temptation. He mentions four things. There were ten tests, but there are four that Paul mentions. And if I had time, I'd go back to them, but I think you know them well enough that I can just allude to them. He says some of them were idolaters. They're waiting on Moses to come down with the commandments. They're not sure whether he's still alive or what's going on. But, you know, they got to be about business. So what they do is they take their... Uh, gold and silver and other items and fashion an idol and then say this is the God who led us out of Egypt. So they turn to the golden calf and become idolaters. They are creating a worship and a type of worship that they're comfortable with, that they're familiar with from their past and they just want to do that. Secondly, Some of them were fornicators. There was open sexual sin going on, as in the Corinthian church. Not directly, but uh, they knew about it. And Paul said, get that guy out of here. We've been through that chapter. In Exodus, we have the story and the rest of the Torah, this story of the sexual uh, appetites that were going on, even to the point of one individual engaging in sex right in front of the the uh, the holy place, and uh, Phineas then takes a, uh, uh, a a spear and runs it through them, uh, and stops the wrath of God in that context. Paul's thinking of that as he's told them to remove this person from their uh, from their midst. He says some tested the Lord. This is open criticism and complaining. Uh, They went to Moses and said, why would you bring us out here? There are no graves in Egypt that you brought us out here? You know, we just, we're we're tired of this. We remember the garlic and the leeks and all the, they don't remember the bad part. They only remember the good part. And that tends to be what we do about the past. And then the argument is, you know, you don't know what you're doing. Now they're griping openly against Moses. But Moses is simply doing what God told him to do. So they're really grumbling openly against the Lord. And the Lord then creates uh, a judgment on them. And then he says some of them grumbled. Now the grumbling is a different idea. This is the quiet in your home, in your own place, among yourselves that's not open and public. I'm not sure this is the way we should go. I don't think Moses knows what he's doing. I think that maybe we should think about it a different way. This is not practical out here in the desert. You know, all those things. So what what 
Paul is doing is he's reminding them that all of the things that's currently happening among the Corinthians, the dividing over leadership, the questioning his leadership, the open fornication and division among them, is the stuff that's already uh, uh, been going on among God's people, and God's attitude about it is already known. And so he says, these were written to teach and to warn us as we come to the end of the age, when such temptation, temptation will be in full force. There will be a testing and a temptation at the end of time, Jesus said, that's greater than ever was before and won't be again. And therefore, if people fell away in these times, what will happen in that context? So, the struggle then is, how do we apply this? And so Paul is going to give us that. He gives us that in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12 and 13. He says, therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. Okay, you're doing pretty good. You think you're doing well. You can fall. Most of us who have been with the Lord very long at all know that we have times when we simply kind of dry up in our following of the Lord. There are times when you think, okay, I'm doing pretty good. I don't have to push so hard. I can do some other things. And then we get ensnared in that. And that's what Paul's talking about. Even if you're doing well, you need to think and watch lest you fall. Okay? Driving down the road, I'm doing good. The traffic's doing good. I don't need to pay quite as close attention. And then all of a sudden, everybody stops and you're skidding to an end. The reality is that life throws problems at us without notice all the time. And so, the one who thinks that he stands should take heed lest he fall. Then he says, and verse 13, this is the first verse I ever memorized uh, at the age of 12 in a uh, kind of a Christian Boy Scout type group that was being formed at the church I was hanging around from time to time. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you may be able to endure it. Now, really important to catch this verse. No temptation has overtaken you. That's how temptation comes. It doesn't come from a long distance and say, I'm coming. I'm coming after you. I'm going to get you. Here I come. Watch out for me. I'm ready. Here I'm going to tempt Are you ready? I'm going to tempt you. doesn't do that. You're just minding your own business, you think. And all of a sudden, there's a decision you make. You make a decision, you make a decision, and you realize you're down the road of temptation. There is a process. We are drawn away by our own lusts and then enticed and then temptation brings forth sin and sin brings forth death. That process is one that we're constantly having to watch ourselves for. Um, it's the, if you have a car where your car is a little bit out of alignment and if you drive on these roads, 
It's not long before your car's a little bit out of alignment. If you let go of the wheel, it'll either veer to the left or veer to the right a little bit. And you just kind of keep having to pull it back. Well, that's, that's that urge that we have. We're drawn away by our own lust. Those are just naturally there. And if you're not paying attention, you will hit that side of the road and then you have to make an adjustment. So, he says it overcomes you, but God remains faithful who will not allow you to be tempted above that you are able. In other words, there is no temptation that we face that we can't resist and endure. That should give us pause. Because we all have a history of sins and our tendency is to think, oh, I got caught in that one. I just got caught up. And the reality is that uh, God didn't give us an inability to not get caught up in that. There is something in us that either by ignoring it or intentionally, and there is both unintentional and intentional sin, but it's by not paying attention or by deliberately seeing how close to the fire we can get before we get burned, that happens. So he says, God gives us a way of escape. The way of escape is to walk in His ways. If we follow the Spirit, and we walk in the commandments, we will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh, Paul says. So we've got a way to do it, but it's our spiritual discipline that has to be there. And usually what happens is, we let the spiritual disciplines ebb, because we're doing all right, and then we trip up. So, he says, you can endure that. Therefore, he says, uh, uh, that this is a common problem, happens to all of us, and we need to be aware of that. So, now in verses 14 to 22, he is going to go back to what he's been talking about, which is this food sacrifice to idols stuff. <clears throat> because that was their struggle. Not as much of a struggle for us, Though we talked about it last time, there are some places where we still have to address this. But the principle will be the same. So in 14 he says, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men, you judge what I say. Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Since there is one bread, and all who are many are one body, and we all partake of that one bread, <clears throat> look at the nation Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices sharers in the altars? So what do I mean? That a sacrifice, that thing sacrificed to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No. But I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to become sharers in demons. You cannot drink of the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than He? So, Paul's explaining in this context based on their experience and their knowledge of the Torah. Now they regularly partake of the cup and the bread of the Lord. 
want to talk about that, there are two possibilities of what Paul is talking about here. There are people who believe that the time of the Corinthian church, it was already well established that the weekly gathering included a Eucharistic type Passover celebration. And since Paul has referred earlier to Christ as our Passover, it makes sense that that might be what he's talking about. But the immediate context is clearly different. He's going to talk about that in the next chapter. And in this chapter, he does not refer to the items in the manner that he is prescribing in chapter 11. In chapter 11, he says he took the bread and then he took the cup. Here he mentions the cup first and mentions the bread. Now, if I said that in the average Baptist church, it would make no difference to you. But you're not an average Baptist church. So what ceremony do we engage in, hint what today is, that begins with the cup and then the bread? Shabbat. It begins on Friday night with the cup which we bless and the bread which we bless. And he says that cup and that bread is the communion of the body and blood of the Messiah. For certain, the Passover is the body and blood of Jesus. He said it was, and he said, do this in remembrance of me. But I'm pretty convinced that on the end of Shabbat at the Havdalah, or and what the church would call Vespers, that Saturday night, right before sundown, or right at sundown, there would be a linkage between the old and the new uh, in, in the sense of the testimony of God, and that they would understand that as they were observing Shabbat and about to focus on the resurrection which took place on a Saturday night, that as they took the bread and the cup in that context, being a Shabbat kind of thing, that they would think of it in terms of both the idea of the crucifixion and the idea of communion with one another. Because people who observe Shabbat know that they belong to all who partake of that cup and of that bread. So I think Paul's referring to this Shabbat observance more than he's uh, talking about the Lord's Supper one. The idea is the same, whichever way you want to emphasize that, but I wanted to make that clear. Now, what he says is, we are separated unto him, just as the people were separated unto Moses. He says, Israel partakes of the sacrifices offered to the Lord. Now, when a person would bring a sacrifice, with the exception of the burnt offering, a portion of the sacrifice would go on the altar and the rest would be eaten. We observe that a little bit in that we bring our tithes, we eat from our tithe after the service, doing what Deuteronomy says to do. We're partaking in that sacrifice, which we then give to God when we give the balance into the the offering. And so that participating in the sacrificial system means that you are participating in identification with that God. That's his point. 
So his argument then is, verse 19, he says, What do I mean then? That a sacrifice to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? He's already said in the previous chapter, We know that an idol is nothing. But those people who are sacrificing that, are sacrificing that to what they believe is a God, and we would consider, if there's any spiritual being behind it, a demon. And I don't want you openly participating with Christ and participating with a demon. That's his point. Because you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Now remember, when Paul was talking about sex, he says, if you engage in these sexual practices, particularly talking about the temple prostitutes, you you belong to Christ and you're joining Christ to that God through the temple prostitutes prostitute that fornication is a is an abomination and now if you're eating in other words the more you associate with these pagan deities and with Christ the more you drag Christ into union with these pagan deities and that is not holiness that is not separation and he ends in verse 22 with do we provoke the Lord to jealousy That's the very words of Exodus. We are not stronger than him. Do you really want to take God on in this context? Do you really want to compromise your separation unto God by being connected to these idols and these gods, even though we know they're nothing? So we're back to his knowledge of that. So now what he's going to do is he's going to again talk about the self-limitation that we talked about last week. And he does that in verses 23 to 29. All things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. Let me talk about that, because that's terribly misunderstood. Paul is not saying that everything in the world is lawful. That's how he's interpreted by Christian theologians. What Paul is saying is, everything that the Torah allows me is, is, is lawful. I can do anything that the law allows me to do. But not everything that the law allows me to do is profitable or edifying. Remember what he said. The Torah allows me, you shall not muzzle the ox, allows me to receive income from you Corinthians. But I'm not doing that. For your benefit. You see the principle? The principle is, I can do everything that God allows, but I'm not doing that out of arrogance and puff up. I have rights. I have freedom. I can do all of this because I know a verse. He's saying the issue of love and humility towards the other still guides and self-limits even the things that are free to be done under God's commands. And so he says... All things are lawful, that, that, that are in the law are for me, but they're not always profitable. All things that are in the Torah are available for me, but they don't all edify. So let no one seek his own good, but that of his neighbor. So that's again the principle. 
Not, I have my rights as an American individualist Christian and I can do whatever I want because I know the word and you don't know the word, dipstick. You can't do that. You have to be concerned about the conscience of the other. So he says, Eat anything that is sold in the meat market without asking questions for conscience sake. For the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. Okay? Eat what you're allowed to eat. Okay? But, he says, if one of the unbelievers invites you and you want to go, eat anything that is set before you without asking questions for conscience sake. Then he says, because your conscience might be at odds, but normally we're not violating our own conscience. He says, but if anyone says to you, this is meat sacrificed to idols, do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for conscience sake. I mean not your own conscience, but the other man's. For uh, And I'm going to stop it there. Because this verse shouldn't, shouldn't go on. It should... Verse 30 should start with the word for. So 29, he says, I mean your own conscience, not the uh, not your own conscience, but the other man's. So what is Paul saying? Paul's saying, look, when you go to the shambles, of course some of that food has been sacrificed to idols. Don't ask, don't tell, just eat it. Because the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. He, in other words, it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. That's what... Paul says uh, to Timothy in, in this context. So the idea is you, if in some sense, are annulling that in your heart and, and moving on. Now, if somebody invites you and he's an unbeliever, who knows where he's got his food from, right? It's possibly going to be sacrificed. But they weren't significantly believers in the pagan gods They were just going along with the culture. So he says, if you want to go and eat at their house, eat at their house. But if the guy says, this food was sacrificed to Apollo or to Diana, then you don't eat because of this person's statement and his conscience. Because when he said it, a person wouldn't say that unless they're saying, that is my faith. I have... I have sacrificed this to the God. Now we're going to partake with the God and receive the God's blessing. Now you don't do it. Okay? Now I want you to look at verse 29 right after the semicolon. In in the NASB it's got a semicolon. I believe this is a new section. And if you read it from there down, it makes more sense. So let me read it that way. Why is my freedom judged by another's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I slandered concerning that for which I give thanks? So, Paul's argument here is to say, I have knowledge. I know that that doesn't mean anything. I could just give thanks like I did with the shambles. But I am having to be Limited by the conscience of the other. So he's making their argument for them. Their argument is, why should we have to do that? If these people are ignorant or unbelievers, 
why do why are we limiting ourselves in that context? So now he's going to tell us. And he says that in verse 31. Whether then you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God, giving no offense to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church, just as I also please all men in all things. Remember he said, I become all things to all men. Now he's telling what he meant by that. not seeking my own profit, but the profit of the many, so that they will be saved. Paul's saying, I must show self-limitation and control, even beyond the commandments, so that I am under the command. This is the Christian version, if you will, of the fence that the rabbis drew around the commandments. The rabbis said, let's assume that the commandment is don't touch this pulpit. The rabbis would say, don't come within four feet of the pulpit. Thus saith the Lord. Well, the Lord didn't say that. But if I do that, I won't possibly touch that. And that's what the oral law was. Now there were times when the oral law violated the scriptural intent. And there are many times when the oral law actually understands the spiritual intent. Or what's called the spirit of the law. Okay? Paul's saying the spirit of the law is humility for the sake of another. Now we get this. We get this because we do it in secular things where somebody has a problem or somebody is on a special diet and we accommodate that their diet even though that's not our issue. Okay? Somebody can't eat uh, nuts. I can't eat nuts. And often people will say, okay, we'll prepare our food without the nuts. Or sometimes they just prepare food for me that doesn't have the nuts, that's an accommod- That's this self-limitation for the sake of the other person. But they're doing it for health. Paul says we're doing it for salvation of other people. That we may present the Lord in all His glory, not our entitlement and our rights. This is an incredible chapter, these last two chapters, that often get used to tell, to manipulate people or to tell people that they can do anything they want. And Paul's actually doing just the opposite. He's explaining how we self-limit. Now, it's important to understand. Paul is talking about self-limitation. He's not talking about manipulating and limiting another. Verses are not to be used to tell somebody else that they have to self-limit for you. These verses are telling us to self-limit for another. And Paul's referring to that when he says uh, in chapter 10, verse 15, I speak as to wise men, you judge what I say. He's not talking to 
to them at that point as spiritual infants. He's trying to get them to grow up. He's already called them babes in Christ because they're doing all this. He says, if you really want to show that you are mature and that you understand, you will self-limit for the sake of others as Jesus did. I'm doing, so you will do as well. And that's why he's going to begin the very next chapter with this verse. Be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. In this humility for the glory of God. Incredible, incredible verses. So he explains that this is about the good of the other, not our freedom or our motives. We must be as Christ who humbled himself for the salvation of the world. We are also engaged in the salvation of the world and must avoid damaging the religious Jew, the pagan Greek or secular American, or the church of God, which has multiple views on what's appropriate and not appropriate. And therefore, if I'm with a Christian, and in his tradition, this is a fast day, I will come along him in that fast. Because I'm ultimately wanting to not stumble him, but encourage him for towards the Lord. I can talk to him if he's overstating something, but I don't push past behaviorally. I come to where he is and move with him. I don't try to show him that I can do it and it, it doesn't bother me because that's the arrogance that Paul's talking about. So, whatever we do, it must be for the glory, the manifestation and reputation of the Lord. And we are to avoid hindering others in their view of God because we are defending our freedom in Christ. Now, he's spoken of the cup and the bread of the Lord. I have told you that I think he has in mind both the Shabbat and the Passover thing. He's going to focus more directly on the Passover uh, aspect in the next chapter. And uh, he will talk about, again, the judgment of God on those who either succumb to the temptation or do not fully discern the body and blood of the Lord. And so we'll talk about that next time. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for your word. These are difficult passages, easily misunderstood in the history of Christian uh, thought. We ask, Lord, that you would give us wisdom and guidance as we begin with that Torah foundation and use that to guide the interpretation and understanding of the Apostle's words because that was his intent and we want to understand it in that framework. Help us, Lord, as we do not live in that much of a pagan world, to apply it to the secular issues, the no-God zone that we're uh, forced and our children are forced to be in in this culture and help us to be wise in the application of that. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right.